$95,000 a year? That's the answer to the question, how much money do you need to make in a year to be fully content? So, I didn't realize this was actually a discussion and it had been solved. I just thought I'd Google some interesting facts and figure out what, is, what kind of money does it take to be fine contentment. And then I ran into, man, there's massive amounts of study. Did you know last year, in 2018, 1.7 million people were surveyed um, in researches over 164 different countries to determine that number of $95,000 as a dollar figure for annual income around the world slightly higher in the United States, but as average around the world, that that would be the number at which we would find contentment and lead to happiness. That number is an update from about uh, 10 years prior to that. So in 2010, there's a more common Princeton study. So you can double check me, look up the happiness study 2010, where it states that $75,000 a year is the annual income needed to find contentment. Now your minds are all wondering and wandering around going, I knew I needed a raise or not in Seattle, <laughs> like 75,000, what? You know, because there's all these different things and variations of seeking contentment and money. So welcome to Highlands. We're going to talk about money today, but it's not really the topic today. Okay. So it's not really going to be the focus. It's really about contentment. My, my name is Nick Delgarden. I'm one of the pastors on staff, executive pastor here, and excited to be able to share God's word as we're continuing our series, Bold Church. Bold Church. And the fascinating thing about this, this, this desire for earning a certain amount of money for income that would cause satisfaction in our life is that that number is elusive and different for each one of us. And yet there's this study that says it should be a certain number. And then some of you are still wondering, is that for individuals? Is that for family? Well, maybe that's like in another part of the country, but certainly not in Seattle. So let that stuff wander out of your mind for a little bit, but recognize money is gonna be a part of the conversation in the background of everything today, but it's not the point. It's not the point. The point we're gonna look at is hinged around contentment. And so we're gonna be looking into 1 Timothy chapter six. It's the last chapter in 1 Timothy. And I wanna do a quick kind of recap of where we've been at in this study as we wrap up this book. We're in the middle of this series, Bold Church, as Paul writes to this young pastor, Timothy, about how to lead well. And we're gonna continue into 2 Timothy and Titus and continue around how do we live boldly in the culture we find ourselves in as a church, desiring to fully live under scripture and what it has for us. And so earlier, if you go back and you look at chapter one, chapter two, Paul warns and says, hey, there's going to be people that come in. There's factions and divisions and false teaching. And so watch out for these things. He gets into chapter three and talks about how do you organize? What does it look like for eldership? So we talked about qualifications for elders. Then he talks about deacons and qualifications there. And, and he continues as he puts together a picture of what the church looks like in chapter four and chapter five, some very specific instructions for Paul as he's overseeing this church in Ephesus. And so as he does that, we then have direct application today. How do we operate? How, how do we as a church family function and, and work through things? So chapter six just continues in that line. And all throughout the series, there's been this push that as we read this book about a pastor mentoring and encouraging a pastor today, <clears throat> who are you mentoring? Who's your Timothy? Who's your Paul? Now, I would encourage you right now that maybe if you kicked off this series really well going, yes, I'm going to make sure that I'm being discipled or I'm discipling somebody. Maybe you did a good job a few weeks ago and you've forgotten about that. 
Now's a chance to switch that phone from the Bible over to your text message. Yes, over the text message and shoot a note. Say, hey, I'd love to grab coffee. I'd love to do a phone call. Just do that anytime today. We'd love for you to continue to reconnect relationally with others as you're walking through scripture together, being poured into by Paul's investing into Timothy's. Let that be a part of who we are. But now let's turn. First Timothy chapter six. I'm gonna read the, the, the bulk of the chapter here and then we'll come back and kind of walk through section by section together. So starting in chapter six, we'll pick up at the end of verse two, which kind of starts a new thought and then run through. It says this, teach and urge these things, verse three. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Now, there is great gain in godliness with contentment, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of it. But if we have food and clothing, with these we'll be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you have made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who, is his, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed, the only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality and who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Oh, Timothy, Guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. Woo, like a freight train right to the end. Period. So he just fills it all the way up. We're gonna cover a lot of ground today and it's good to, to read an extended passage of scripture. I hope that you get filled up like that each day as you take time to read scripture and we have reading guides right now for First and Second Timothy and Titus. And some of the daily reading right now is a little bit shorter. I think when we did our Genesis series, it was longer reading each day. Um, but you know, right? You can read more than the daily reading guide. So feel free. Read ahead. Read more. Read other books. There's lots there. And if we want to continue to be ingesting daily that God's word to let it shape and mold our thinking and thoughts. Let's go back to the beginning of chapter 6. 
kicking right off the beginning of or right that, uh, that section we read. Teach and urge these things. This transitionary statement is similar to what he used in, in chapter 1, verse 3, where he said, remain at Ephesus so that, it, that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. So this language in that first chapter then flowed into some things that he was to correct. I think a similar way here he uses this transition statement to say, now here's going to be some things to be cautious about. Make sure that we teach accurately rather than inaccurately. And this was a significant problem, which is what Timothy was needing to address. It's so easy to slip into speculation. Even the same thing can happen today when we're not fully confident. We just speculate and make something up and it sounds really good and people start to believe it and we maybe need to back it up. And No, no, it's speculation. So here he's going to make sure that you teach and urge these things. And it's, it's noteworthy here. Look at, verse, look at verse 4 as he starts to talk about what happens with this, with this false teaching, how he describes it. He says he has an unhealthy craving for controversy and quarrels. Unhealthy, unhealthy. And I think the, the language here is the idea of being sick, whereas he's, sound, he's called sound teaching healthy. Here he calls this unclear doctrine unhealthy. You're being sick. It's causing relational damage. There are serious consequences to wrong doctrine. This isn't just a missed philosophical discussion. This actually is pathological. And I love the, the sense of the body language. I mean, some of you in here are you're runners, maybe you're in the medical field, doctors, and you understand way more than I do that how you, what you put into your physical body actually has physical results. So if I want to start running a, a marathon and training for that, I actually need to treat my body differently than if I'm just content to catch up on Seinfeld episodes in the evening, <laughs> right? I, need, I understand there's a difference in what happens here. And so when I sometimes, personally, just speaking for me, nobody else, uh, late at night enjoy a snack with a bag of crackers and a block of cheese, that's not extreme, is it? You know, you, you do that, and then you realize in the middle of the night you wake up like, oh, what happened? Obviously, it's the choice of my dessert, right? Eating way too much ice cream, and then later it's like, oh, why did I do that? We see those consequences. Unhealthy cravings, ice cream, way too much cheese, like forget moderation, just go all out. That unhealthy physical choices create physical demonstrable consequence. We see that. And he says it's just like that in the family of God. It's unhealthy. So unsound doctrine isn't just a, a curious intellectual exercise for some people out there, but actually has real impact relationally among us. So, so look, what he, look what he says in the rest of this verse. Unhealthy craving for controversy and quarrels about words, which produce, here's the fruit of unhealthy doctrine. Here, here's what he goes on to say. They produce envy, so you have a hard time celebrating with other people because you're envious of them. It can show up in dumb little ways in the back of your mind when somebody's singing up here in a beautiful way in church and lead us in worship and you're wondering, oh, I wish I could sing like that. I mean, and suddenly an envious thing comes in. Instead of being blessed by the, the gifting and ability of those among us, we get jealous and envious of somebody and it causes disruption. It's hard to celebrate with somebody else. It shows up in all different ways. You guys know what envy looks like. Now look what else, dissension. So there's factions, there's groups of people. Okay, so we take, we take this side over the room, right? And you're obviously more holy because you sat over here and you over here, well, 
you're on this side. And so I don't, I don't know if, I mean, you're with the soundboard stuff. Like this probably isn't as good a section and we're just gonna ignore these middle people. Like what were they thinking being this close, right? Like, suddenly we can break people into groups and it's like, well, now they're talking about them and, and we think it's gonna happen that way. Or we're like, well, what about those that go on the mission trip and well, those that don't? Well, I know they gave money to the mission trip, so they're in another category and we can cause all these little divisions which are horrendous. Or we can say, well, I come to the 930. Well, I go to the 1110. I go to the Renton campus. I go to the Kent campus. I, I was here before you were at... And we end up with all these different things that are relational frictions that cause dissension. And we've got our eye off the target of reaching people for Jesus. And now, as a family, we're unhealthy. Just like late at night, binge eating all of that ice cream that causes issues later. <laughs> we have this unhealthy way that we're relating as a family. So we have envy, we have dissension, these things are produced from unhealthy doctrine that takes our eye off the gospel. There's envy, there's dissension, there's slander. Even in our language, we start gossip or things behind the scenes say things about people. There's evil suspicions. This one's specifically, I think, sinister in the way there's evil suspicions. Sometimes when there's a lack of communication or somebody's gone and they didn't tell you something, we have a choice to make when, we, when there's not clear communication. We can either fill in in that moment a sense of I expect the worst. So whatever the worst case scenario is, we start to believe that evil suspicion. Or we can say, knowing people around don't always communicate the best and you know, we wish somebody else would treat us like we would hope to be treated and so we can believe the best. And what happens in an unhealthy culture where Doctrine is downplayed and there's all these other things that are creeping in and there's false teachers and things. You end up not only with envy and dissension, but just believing the worst. Start walking around in eggshells. Somebody misses a Sunday and somebody didn't say something like, oh, they're off the deep end. Pray for their soul. What's happening here? No, they just had somebody's birthday party out of town they went to. <laughs> like, not a big deal. But we can fill in all of these blanks and be unsure because we haven't heard or Evil suspicions so easily creep in. And it kind of sums up here in verse five, in constant friction among people, this friction that's caused. Have you been in an experience like that? Have you ever walked into a room where obviously people are talking about you and then now they're not? And then it's like awkward silence and it's like, oh, oh. it's kind of awkward there. Or, or you've been in maybe a work environment where it's just unhealthy and competitive and in not a good way. And, and it's just this friction and, and just awkward conversation. Somebody tries to make a joke just to break the ice and it doesn't work. That's the last way the family of God's to be described. And he's saying, watch out for this fruit and how damaging it can become. Envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicion, constant friction. These have relational impacts which is why continuing to come back to God's word in our own time, in our own time here as a church family is what centers us to remind us this is what we're following. This is who we're following. Look, look what it goes on to say. Not only that, but imagining that godliness is a means of gain. That godliness is a means of gain. It wasn't enough that all these different issues were happening in an unhealthy body, but there are also this, this group of people that, had, that saw godliness as a chance to profit so there's this financial opportunity they saw within godliness. He's going, no, 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 no. Say far from that. We don't want to do that now. Now this is, we don't find out exactly how the false teachers 
we're doing that. We don't know exactly, but there's some, some cues. Already in 1 Timothy 2, Paul has addressed certain women to pursue godliness rather than just gaudy apparel. So there's clearly some wealth things going on there. I mean, in, in the second visit in Acts 19, in Paul's missionary journeys, so he was there and there's a silversmith and his craftsmen there that were crafting these shrines and these idols that were, they were selling. And there's a whole economy around the religion within Ephesus that had been built up and made money around this temple. And so as Paul comes in and preaches against idolatry, this whole, this whole group of, of people in their trade is disrupted. And because of that, there's a whole issue here where Paul's saying people are being saved into faith in Jesus. He says, now don't do what they were doing over in the temple, making a profit off of selling all of these things because of their religious faith. Don't do that to be a part of the family of God. Godliness, following after Jesus is not primarily for profitability. It's not to be meshed together. We're not selling seats here in the front section for first class seating with popcorn provided. Right? This, is not, this is not how we're to be doing these things. So he says, some people are turning godliness into a means of gain. Don't do that. Don't do that. And it doesn't take long to be able to translate and see today how that shows up in many different ways. It's so simple and sly to slip into those areas. But when we look at the frank truth that when a plane is careening towards earth doomed, those who bought their luxury seats in first class, those that barely made it into coach with the last pennies in their bank, they're heading in the same place. When they stand before eternity, money doesn't mean a thing. There's a far more beautiful thing that Paul's going to push us towards here than trying to amass wealth. Now, culturally, this is a big deal for us. I mean, hedonism, this idea of pleasure and indulgence of being our ultimate God is, is so much a part of American culture. And so we have this deeply ingrained desire and need to, to fulfill that through financially amassing different things. And, and we have things that stress come in because of financial matters in, in incredible ways. We even use stress shopping to relieve things. We get stressed out about where we're going to provide. And, and these are not trivial things. These are, these are not trivial things. So don't let me, let me say, make sure that's clear. This, none of these are trivial. But this is where it can get twisted as we read a passage like this. Christian, you are not promised, you are not promised that godliness leads directly to wealth. God is not a cosmic vending machine waiting for you to act in a certain godly way that then provides an equal and obvious financial benefit that will be placed in your account at a predictable time. That's unhealthy, that's sick. That's what he's talking about here. That's what's to be avoided. It's instead far more beautiful. Look at verse six. Look what's actually said when it comes to contentment. Now, there is great gain in godliness with contentment. There's great gain in godliness with contentment. He's here stripping away that desire for wealth or some kind of twisted wealth within the American dream piece, we want to remove that. Do not mistake the Christianized version of the American dream for God's plan for your life. Comfort, most often equated with financial security, is the God of our generation. And so, suffering is often seen as a problem to be solved rather than a providence from God. 
When we think about Job, Job was singled out by the enemy purely because of his godliness. He was godly and he lost everything because he had done nothing wrong. That was the point. He becomes the perfect example for us to look at and go, how does he, being the target of this, now live a godly life? God is all in all. He's sovereign. He sees all things. He was there present. And yet, let's not let the devil off the hook for inflicting all the damage and the death and the destruction around Job's life. So often we take these horrific things that happen and go, God, how could you? Rather than properly assigning those evils to the evil himself, the devil, and what he would desire to destroy in our heart and life. And yet, not sinning against God. Listen to what Job said. It's a direct quote of verse 7 in chapter 6. Job, before Paul wrote this letter, said, when all these things happened, didn't sin against God, but he said, Job rose, he tore his robe, shaved his head, fell on the ground, and worshipped. And then he said, just as is quoted here, In chapter six, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked shall I return. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And all of this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. How beautiful is that? As he quotes this right here, or Paul quotes Job's very words there. Godliness with contentment is great gain. And I love this, this word contentment, which is taken, Paul took straight from the Stoics of the time that said contentment was a self-sufficiency, that within you there was this fully found contentment. And I love how Paul applies that to the Christian, that this godliness, the character that God is forming in your heart, that right here, not based on situations outside of you, but based on what God's doing in your heart, there's a self-sufficiency of God's work in your life to bring contentment. That godliness is holy, Wow, to lay at night and fall asleep knowing there's a godliness, not an envy or a wondering if, but a godliness that brings incredible contentment. Now, this is not simple. (laughs) So much of this is easy to say and hard to do because I can think of nights where I've laid in bed thinking, oh, God, if I just bought one lottery ticket and you let me win, I would give so much to the church and then I could, like, how many, let's just be honest, right? How many of us have done that at least once? Yes, please, yes. Okay, a few of you already raised your hand. Okay, yes. And everybody that's not raising their hand is thinking about it right now. But there's just this, this piece that's just, it's not easy to do. So listen to what Paul said in Philippians. In Philippians 4, he said, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in In any and every circumstance, I have learned, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I have learned. This is not simple. This is not something that just happens without any thought. This is something that we learn. And one of my favorite things to do is 
is uh, premarital counseling and stepping in with different couples who, who are eager and excited to be married and everything's great and they've got this picture of the future in front of them and they sit down in my office and we're talking about them getting married and they're sharing their engagement story and all these things that are so awesome and amazing and how both their families love each other, at least that's what they think at this point and, and everything that's going so well for all these things and then I'm like, great, well, let's step into this. Let's start talking through things and then we get to the week where we're like, well, let's talk about budget. And it's amazing the number of people that have never really seriously budgeted or they're like, I'm like, so tell me about your budget. Like, oh yeah. So I print off my credit card from the receipt from the last month and then I could tell you how I spent my money. That's my budget. <laughs> That's not a budget. <laughs> and budget's like plan it before, right? Plan it before. It's, I don't know a lot. I'm not an accountant, but I think that's the order. It's just amazing how we have a hard time learning this. And so I realize this is a skill. How do we handle money? that I hope that if you need help with, reach out. We'd love to connect you with people within our church that do a great job. Dave Ramsey has incredible resources online as well as other churches in the area that, that walk through that. And uh, there's good help in this place. I know with my own daughter who was, who was here in the last service, she, she helped me out with this point, yelling loudly when I asked her, you know, what, how, do you, uh, how do we use money? And she proudly said, we tithe, save, live on the rest. How easy for a seven-year-old. <laughs> right? Tithe. Yep, you made a dollar. So here's your dime. And then, but actually, that's hard. That's actually really hard. We say it's simple, but whether you're seven or a little bit older, 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 like wherever you find yourself, this, this learning to be content as we specifically lean into these financial areas is difficult. And so Paul says, I have learned. I have learned. And contentment, as we look at this, is not simply settling for less. It's not. It's understanding there's more. Godliness, the holy ability to sleep at night with your integrity intact, grateful for the things that you have, rather than being eaten from the inside out by envy or, or wishing. What a beautiful, godly contentment. What a beautiful contentment. Let's look at verse 11 as he continues on. It says, but as for you, now Paul speaking right to Timothy, O man of God, and he goes into four different things. He says, flee, pursue, fight, take. These four different things are how a man of God is to be marked. So as we look at these things, look at these four actions. Flee, this first one. What does it say there? Flee. Flee these things. All this covetousness, this purchase of stuff, trying to be financially on top and thinking you're poor, trying to become rich and making that the, the God of everything. Flee these things. Now, this word flee is, is really strong. Paul uses it three other times in different letters. And two of those times, it's actually used in relation to sexual immorality. So as you think about sexual morality, as you think about this desire of money, I think there's something here that's pretty clear. You can't just kind of be one foot in, one foot out, lukewarm, and it's going to eat you alive or you're going to run away. I mean, you think about money, it's just, you're not just going to think, well, I'll kind of be kind of motivated for godliness to lead to wealth, like God's blessing me right now, so I'm, it feels better to be a Christian. This is nice. It's kind of working. You can't like kind of be in it. He says, Flee. Let just turn around and run. And then I love that the next three, he doesn't just say, start running. You're like, what am I running towards? He gives you clear things to pursue. 
Look at this, this next thing. So flee these things now. Pursue instead. What are we to pursue? Pursue righteousness, right living before God. Godliness. Man, that our character and our attitude would just reflect the qualities that we see in Scripture in such a way that it's godly. That there is a faith, there is a, a dependence upon God that when nobody around you may think the same thing, my faith is wholly set on God. There's a dependence on who he is. There is a love. You can go a couple different ways with like a, a thought of a warm blanket over the top. It just holds it together in a beautiful way. Or maybe a foundation that just undergirds everything. Love is solid. There's a steadfastness. We don't use that word enough, right? Steadfast. It just feels like you got to flex when you say it. I mean, steadfast. There's just, it's just going to continue on. It's just moving ahead. It's whether you're in Seattle when it's gray and cloudy or it's sunny. We're a steadfast people, right? We're going to keep on. Bless you. There's gentleness. Gentleness. Ah, I love this gentleness, this sense of how we're, as a people, to be gentle. I think Paul writes elsewhere to fathers to be gentle, not to be harsh with your kids. That we would be a gentle people in how we relate with one another. Men and women, let us be gentle with one another. And what's the very next word after gentle? First word of verse 12. Fight. I love that, right? Gentle. Fight. <laughs> like, okay, so what, what? These words are right next to each other. So there's this gentleness relationally, but then fight. What are we fighting? Fight the good fight of faith. What does a fight do? Think about the last time you were in a fight, okay? Some of you, maybe more recently, some of you, probably a good thing, it has been a while. Um, for me, it was yesterday. So here's what happened, okay? So my brother is back here playing, was playing drums. You saw him, the guy that's like really strong and taller than me and all that stuff. So yesterday we were out at, the, uh, at a lake and then I was just coming in with a paddleboard with my son in there and then Daniel comes out, shirt off, coming like, like just playing the Hulk role, kind of come out and like take me into the water. You gotta know, I'm way too competitive. I don't care how strong you are, how big you are, my little brother here, watch out, here we go. I like calling him little brother too since he's bigger than me. But so for Daniel, or he's coming at me and I'm going, oh, he's going down. And so yeah, just, you know, start a little, little goofy thing here. But, but when you fight, when there's a, a fight going on, when somebody's coming at you like that, what, what happens? Everything else blurs out, right? And you're dialed into what's ahead of you. Fight the good fight of faith. As a people of God, so often the unhealth as a body happens when we take our eye off the fight, that there is a gospel mission at stake, that we can fight and cause dissension and all these different things in between us. But let's remind ourselves that we're fighting a fight that is far too important for us in this room, for us as a church, for us as a church community with other churches around to squabble over things when we have a gospel to proclaim to this community to boldly share scripture in a way that impacts hearts. Let us fight that fight that pushes back darkness. So last service, I didn't tell who ended up in the water first with my brother. So I had lots of people stop me afterwards and ask. He was in the water first. 
by about that much, and I was splashed right behind him. So we, we both went down. We had a good wrestle in the water there. But when you, when you fight, when there's an intensity on something, it dials in your focus. Let's be, let be a people that's dialed in. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life. When you take hold of something, you necessarily let go of something. Let us let go of those momentary things that amassment of wealth for its own sake and sense to take hold of the eternal. Let our wealth simply be the type of thing that's used as a tool in its rightful place that we steward well, as some in this room will be able to amass a massive amount of wealth and praise God for it. Let it be a tool used. Let us not hold on to wealth. Let us take hold of what is eternal. Let us take hold of what is eternal. Do not pride yourself on things that ultimately, they're just not yours. They're just not going to carry with us into eternity. This was something that was reminded to, uh, to us in chapter 4. It's about verse 8 in that, in that section there. Where it talked about physical training is good for now, but godliness is good for now and into eternity. Let us have the eternal in mind. Let's look at verse 17. He continues on after this section. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. And this section is, it's just exciting for me to brag on you, on Highlands and the generosity. That whether you consider yourself more like the earlier part of the chapter, wishing you had more and what God says to you is set your sights on godliness, not just wealth. Or maybe you recognize, as, we, as you think about yourselves more in an international community, of how blessed we are wealthy. Some of you recognize you stand in this category very clearly let me remind you how your generosity is making an eternal impact. We can't share all of the stories because of pastoral confidence of some of the benevolence that walks through our doors. But one of the things that I am blessed to say every time I sit down with uh, anybody, whether it's a couple or an individual, somebody from our community, someone within our church, that when somebody has a request and a need and we filter that through and it's authentic and we step in to help, it is my privilege to be able to say because of the generosity of the people of Highlands, it's my privilege to help you with this and then step into that. Because I realize I stand not as me helping, but as the people, as the family here gets to step in. And what a beautiful statement for each of those people that maybe for some who step into benevolence have contributed in the past, never picturing themselves needing to ask for help. But that's what a family does. We step in. The rich in this world recognize the help. And so as you give and recognize both through the tithes, through the generosity, and recognize that your money is for more than just temporal things to amass wealth now, but generosity. It does things like not just help Highlands, but other churches. Renton Bible, just a church just down the road from the Highlands Renton campus, is a church that was, has recently been experiencing growth in a healthy way, and it's exciting to go, man, every church in this community, in this hill, in this whole state could double in attendance, and we'd still need more churches. So please, God, fill all of our churches. <laughs> But just right down the road from us, Renton Bible is going through a construction project. And they've had people generously give time and resources and the general contractors donated things. And, and they've got all this stuff happening. And somebody broke into their trailer and stole thousands of dollars of professional equipment. Showed up on the news. And the next day, Pastor Jesse and myself had the privilege on behalf of Highlands, unbeknownst to most of you, but because of your generosity, it empowered us to go to this local pastor who had a very real need 
and provide a check to say, we wanted to bless you and what God's doing in your place here to replace your tools. You know what the cool thing was? Sitting in that auditorium that was still just scaffolding being worked on, we'd be able to pray together what God would do to reach people for Christ in that place. And what God's doing there, I think, is even amazing from the fact that the money, the value of things that were stolen because of the, the coverage from Como and other people that said, oh, look what happened to this little local church. More people are starting to donate and generate into what God is doing in this community. How beautiful is that? For us to even with that pastor to go, we don't want to tie your hands by saying you can only buy tools with this money. Praise God if other people contribute so much more money that you're going to be blessed beyond it. Use this money for your building in any sense to allow this to complete the construction because we want to see more people come to find and follow Jesus in Renton Bible, in Highlands, in this place because it's too important not to do this together. So thank you for your generosity as we continue to step in this type of way. This is what Paul is writing. Say, this is how the wealthy use and invest their money. This is powerful as we're able to do. Now, as he finishes, he writes straight to Timothy. He says, you, Timothy, look at here at the very end and we'll wrap up. Oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you Avoid all these false things. Let's not suppress the truth. Let that not be any part of us. That's something that can happen in an unhealthy way. Paul writes the same thing to the, in the book of Romans, where he warns them that the wrath of God is revealed against those who suppress the truth. So don't suppress the truth. Let us be people who tell the truth. Don't fall into the false hope that money is our only security that that promise is actually a lie. And, and here's, here's our bottom line, that wealth does not provide the happiness it promises. This whole chapter pushes us to contentment is found in making Christ Lord. Contentment is found in making Christ Lord. And so to the poor, see beyond money to the value of godliness because contentment is found in making Christ Lord. To the wealthy, don't become complacent in regards to godliness. Don't place false hope on that amassed wealth. But instead, recognize contentment comes by making Christ Lord. So if you're here and you've placed your identity, your hope, your everything on wealth, and you realize in so many different ways that it can so easily slip between your fingers, would you today place your saving faith in Jesus as Lord? Jesus speaking to Nicodemus, a wealthy Pharisee, said this, he said in, in, in John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that whoever, whoever believes in his only son, whoever believes in him will have eternal life. And we place our faith and trust in him and recognize it's Jesus our hope, not our money. What a beautiful place to be. For those of us that maybe have forgotten this or let it slip, may we be quick to come back to that place. Let me pray for us as we step into this together. God, I thank you. I thank you for your word. I thank you for the ways that we can, we can come and be reminded week after week of your goodness to us. God, would we, would we be quick to recognize our dependence on you? So God, I, I pray. I pray for those of us here that need to repent for the first time. God, maybe others for a reminder in their heart and life. God, I, we just repent. We wanna turn our dependence on wealth as a savior and a source of contentment to you. God, we believe that Jesus died on the cross 
for our sins, that God raised him from the dead. And I, I believe this is, God is a gift to be received by faith. So God, we place our full faith and dependence on you. So God, move in all of our hearts in a way to deepen our contentment. God, that you would put godliness on display in a way that boldly proclaims your truth in, in beautiful ways. God, we need you and we, we celebrate your gift in our lives. It's in the precious name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.